Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 6, Episode 22. My name is Rick. I'm author of many books over the last decade, but the most recent is the Jesus Center Daily, the daily devotional that came out in October of last year. And upcoming in the first week of September, a new book, uh, one of the rare times that I've co-authored a book with someone. It's called The Suicide Solution, and I wrote it with Dr. Daniel Emina, who is the clinical director for the Amen Clinics, um, a series of uh, psychological clinics that are mostly on the West Coast. Um, but the, the focus of the book is unusual. It's, an, it's a passionate uh, exploration of how to help people uh, sort of emerge out of or beat back the onset of anxiety, depression, and suicidality. And it really comes out of a season of my life where I had been surrounded by suicides in the high suicide area where I live and listening to the ways that this was responded to over and over again. And it just created an unrest in me about the answers and directions and strategies that were being promoted within the culture. They were missing something. There was something very hollow and very surface about everything that I was hearing. And so I started a many years uh, exploration then of how my own passionate understanding of Jesus and the ways that he rescued people, the ways that he intervened in their story um, matched um, what could actually help people from sliding into a, a deeper depression. And um, along the way, it's too long of a story to tell, I ended up getting paired with Dr. Daniel Amina, who is um, uh, very experienced in working with people who are um, trapped in suicidality. And between the two of us, we uh, meshed together some of the emerging best practices of that, that are clinical and scientific for helping people who are struggling with depression um, and mesh those up with the best practices of Jesus, I guess you could call it. And so it's a book about the foundations of an approach that could help people find rescue and um, redemption out of their struggles with depression and suicide. Um, and combined with the two thirds of the book is just a menu of practical things that emerge out of both the science and the practice of Jesus. So, so that's coming out in the first week of September, which is suicide awareness week. So that, that again is called the suicide solution. And, um, I'm going to, uh, as the time gets closer, we'll launch into a new series that really explores some of the underpinnings, um, in this book which are uh, powerful and healthy for all people, not just those who are struggling with depression or suicidality. So uh, it'll be a fascinating time to sink into 
um, all of the research and thought that has been poured into this little book. Actually, it's not a little book. <laughs> it's one of the one of the biggest ones I've written. So, so anyway, I'm excited to tell you more about that as time gets closer. So today is the fifth episode in a new series that I've called The Harvest. And we'll continue with this until I switch over to a series based on the suicide solution. And um, the idea behind the harvest is that you know, we know from, from nature that all fruit comes from a tree and each tree produces a certain kind of fruit. And Jesus has told us that uh, the metaphoric reality of his relationship to us is we are like a branch connected to a vine, a dead and dying branch that's been grafted into a, a vine full of life or a tree, a tree of life. And when we do connect and abide in that tree, we produce fruit after the tree's own kind in our own branch. And that means that we produce the fruit of Jesus, that the fruit he naturally produces, we naturally produce as we become more deeply attached to him. But Jesus is no ordinary fruit tree. Uh, instead of just producing one kind of fruit, he produces many, many, many varieties of fruit. And so do we when we're attached to him. So what we're doing is exploring each variety of fruit and sort of tracking it back to its source in the tree who is Jesus. And then exploring, well, what does that look like? How does that lived out in our life? Uh, how, how does that fruit show up in our life? So we uh, so that that's what we're doing. We're exploring the many different ways Jesus um, lives out the fruit that he produces. So, so uh, today's episode is actually part one of two parts. <laughs> We're going to do something that focuses on story and metaphor. And story and metaphor are often thought of as techniques or strategies that Jesus uses to teach. Um, he uses stories and he uses metaphors to teach. But it, it's not primarily a technique or a strategy. It's actually a way of living. The reason that Jesus told so many stories and metaphors is because uh, story and metaphor is central to the kingdom of God. We are narrative people. That means that we live inside our own story and are affected by plot elements in our life's journey that affect our story. And... Uh, Jesus understands this because this is how we were created to be story people, to be narrative people. Uh, what happens when something bad happens is introduced into the story? What happens then? Uh, that you could really look at the whole of uh, our redemptive promise as a, a story that had a big twist in it. <laughs> it has a big twist in the first place with Adam and Eve. And then it has tension uh, for, for millenniums. And along the way, the Trinity concocts a plot twist that, um, that no one expects. Even though we've been told the plot twist is coming, none of us really understood what it would look like when it got here. And the plot twist is Jesus. And from there, from that point forward, our promise of redemption takes on new meaning and a new path. So I thought we would start out um, today with um, an episode uh, the, of one of those times, I guess I'm trying to say, when Jesus told one of his metaphoric parables. Uh, 
Um, now this one comes in the middle of a stretch of what I call botanical metaphors. So he was, he was telling a series of metaphors that are based in the created world or in, uh, in the botanical world. This one is called the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Um, and as I read this, I want you to be thinking about this parable as a lens that we're going to use to explore story and metaphor today. So this is kind of the, this parable is the lens that we're going to look through to explore uh, the way Jesus um, is driven by story and metaphor and the way that Jesus unlocks our own story and brings redemptive rescue into our own story. So here is the parable of the wheat and the weeds from Matthew 13, 24 through 30. If you're not driving, I'm going to crack open that Jesus-centered Bible um, that Bible that uh, I was general editor of and was released, I don't know, five or six years ago and became very popular um, because it has uh, uh, aspects to it, new features that we put in it that aren't in any other Bible, all of them designed to draw your focus back to Jesus all the time. So, so there's a, <laughs> there's a brief aside about the Jesus in our Bible, but if you, if you're not driving, you want to crack that thing open to Matthew 13, 24 through 30, go ahead and do that. Here's the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Here's another story that Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat. And then he slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked? No, no, he replied. You'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles and burn them and to put the wheat in the barn. All right, there you have it. Uh, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And again, I said, we're going to use this parable like a lens to look through um, at this, at this driving core fruit of Jesus, which is story and metaphor. So essentially uh, what's happening here when Jesus tells this parable is he's telling us that the culture, or you could call it the operating system of God's kingdom, um, really is based on story and metaphor. So when he tells a parable like this, he's, he's trying to reveal the kingdom of God. And we always think that his stories with their, uh, the, the meaning of his stories is what he is trying to tell us about the kingdom of God. And that's true but also the medium with which he tries to reveal the kingdom of God is also important. And the medium that he chooses to reveal the kingdom of God in is mo most often a story. So we have a life story, let's say, that is like a garden or a field. Good things grow up in our field and bad things planted by an enemy also grow up in it. In our, in our story or in our field, or you could say in our interior narrative, Jesus has decided to let the weeds grow side by side with the wheat until the harvest, whatever that is, when the weeds will be pulled out and separated. So two questions 
that are important for us to consider, and we're going to revisit these a bit later, is the first one is, why does Jesus allow the weeds to grow along with the wheat in this story? And not just in this story, um, why does he allow weeds to grow along with the wheat in our story, in our narrative? Uh, Paul, by the way, asked this very question uh, in this famous uh, interchange he had with Jesus when he pleaded with Jesus to take away the quote-unquote thorn in his side. Um, he was essentially saying to Jesus, why is this weed allowed to grow here? It's, there's no good purpose for it. It's sucking the life from me. Um, I shouldn't have this here. Why don't you just take it away? And, and he doesn't. Jesus doesn't take it away. And th that, that's the central question here. Why not? Why does Jesus allow the weeds to grow along with the wheat in this story? And then the second question is, well, what, what is the harvest he's referencing? Now, I have to say, um, typically, when we think about this parable, at least the way I've heard this in the church growing up, uh, kind of framed, is that this is a parable about heaven and hell, that the bad people represented by the wheat, weeds are going to be separated from the good people represented by the wheat and the bad people are going to be thrown into hell with a burn up while the wheat will be stored in God's barn, which is heaven. So we have had this sort of surface understanding of this parable, which I believe is completely wrong. <laughs> it's it's uh, maybe completely wrong is too strong, but I think it, I, I think there's a much more powerful and obvious way of understanding the meaning behind his parable. So let's think, let's think of our life through the lens of story, um, because this is how Jesus communicates the kingdom of God. Um, let's think of our life through the lens of story and consider for a second, there's 14 generally accepted genres of literature, 14 of them, and some of them overlap a little bit. But uh, here's just a sampler of those 14. Here's 10 of those 14. So there is mystery and thriller and horror and romance and Western. And then there's something called Bildungsroman. And that's when a character grows psychologically or morally from their youth into adulthood. That's a genre of literature, Bildungsroman. There's also science fiction and fantasy and dystopian. And dystopian, if you remember, is a form of literature that's set in societies that are viewed as worse than the one that we live in. And then there's magical realism, and that's where the world is depicted truthfully, but there's added magical elements to it. So there's 10 of those 14. The other four seem like overlapping to me. So um, I, I didn't list those out, but those are all... Um, popular forms of, of literature that, um, well, that, that could also be ways of us understanding our own story. So if you had to choose one of those genres of literature to tell your life story, which one would you choose? Would you choose thriller? I hope you wouldn't choose horror, but for some of you, even secretly, that is what you would embrace. Would you choose romance or Bildungsroman, where the character grows psychologically and morally? 
science fiction, fantasy, dystopian, magical realism, which one of those fits your story best? Um, I think the one that fits, the one I would choose for my own story is mystery. Um, mystery because uh, my life has been colored by and magnetized by mystery. Um, mostly the mystery of who I've become and how I've become it. And the mystery of how Jesus has worked his redemption, like, um, you know, like yeast into a, into a lump of dough to bring life to me. How has he done that? So much of the ways that Jesus has rescued and redeemed me in my life, I would call part of a mystery because there's no easy explanation for a lot of what has really transformed my life. Um, so I would choose mystery as the best genre of literature to tell my story. What's interesting is that if we just think about genres of literature and how they might um, give context to or boundaries around our story, it's not that hard when you start thinking about it because our life at its basis is really a narrative. This is actually more than just a fun, creative way to understand your life though. We are hardwired for story because we're created by a storyteller. So our life is all about story. Here's a, an excerpt from this upcoming book I told you about called The Suicide Solution. This is in chapter one of that book, and I think it speaks to what I'm talking about right now. So here's a little excerpt from the book. Another way to understand the human operating system or the software. So throughout the book, by the way, Daniel and I use the metaphor of computer software and hardware to describe um, how a human being works. Um, so there is uh, software, which is the operating system of a human being. And, um, and there's hardware, which is the biology of a human being. Both are working in tandem to create wholeness. So that's something to keep in mind as you listen to this. So I'll just start this over again. Another way to understand the human operating system or our software is to think of it as our story. Story works to construct, give meaning to, and set boundaries around our experience of reality. Our story is the narrative code that unlocks the meaning behind our experiences in life. The story we tell ourselves about ourselves determines how we function and influences our limitations and possibilities in life. Dan McAdams, a professor of psychology at Northwestern University, calls this our narrative identity. It's our own personal mythology, complete with plot twists, thematic threads, and heroes and villains. McAdams says we tell ourselves two basic self-narratives. The first one is called redemptive stories. And the second one is called contamination stories. The first kind of story, redemptive stories, is transplanted from the kingdom of God, where redemption is not only the mission of the Messiah, but also the heartbeat of life. The second kind of story, contamination stories, is exported and propagated by the kingdom of darkness, where killing, stealing, and destroying, referencing John 10.10, 10, is the mission. So here we have, I, I just love the way Dan McAdams frames what our life is really about, what our software is really all about, our narrative identity. And into that narrative identity are threaded redemptive stories and contamination stories. 
Now think about that relative to the parable of the wheat and the weeds. You could think about the redemptive stories of our narrative being the wheat and the contamination stories that are in our narrative being the weeds. And they both grow up together. And, and McAdams says that these thematic threads that are in our story, everyone has them. Everyone has threads of redemption. Everyone has threads of contamination in their story. So um, when we think about the primacy of story in our self-narrative, here's something that God in his generosity and humility has done to help us. He has surrounded and immersed our, us in an experiential story. And that experiential story is called creation. So we know from Romans 1 that when God created everything, he planted in all of creation his very character and personality so that the creation that we live in and interact with is always teaching us about who he really is if we'll pay attention. This is what Paul's trying to point out in Romans 1. Um, creation is really just a grand story with billions and trillions of micro stories that reveals to us the character and personality of God and the way things work in his kingdom, if we will only pay closer attention. So what God has done is he's planted us in a place where we are, if we pay attention, we, we can discover the story of God and how it impacts our story if, if, if we're just wide awake to it. But in his generosity, he's, uh, he's surrounded and immersed us in his own story to, so that we can experience his story, not just hear about it through creation. So in essence, he's simply saying that the created world is a living metaphor that we live around and inside. And again, if we just pay better attention, we'll discover the truth about God's story and even the truth about our own story. We'll see God better and understand life in his kingdom better. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 1 that, that we're now accountable to. We're accountable to God no matter what we've heard about Jesus because all of creation is speaking the truth about him and about his kingdom. So one way to think about this is to, you know, I said that it's, it's uh, one macro story of God's story, but it's also trillions of little micro stories that contribute to that. And those micro stories, if we pay attention to them, we get a little snippet of God's character and the way things work in the kingdom of God. And uh, I, I just saw uh, on, on a show that my wife and I love to watch called CBS Sunday Morning. Uh, it's our favorite show. Um, it's a show uh, on Sunday morning, go figure, um, that is all about feature stories. Uh, they're tied to the culture, to the arts, to news. It's all over the board, but it's done very well with some of the best storytelling on TV. Um, and uh, I saw recently a six minute piece on what ants can teach us. <laughs> and uh, I thought of this whole dynamic that Paul is talking about in Romans one right away. So what are the, uh, what do ants um, by their very nature and how they operate and how, and, and what they're like, what are they teaching us about God's nature? And what are they teaching us about the kingdom of God? And in this short video, you see uh, the 
ants working together to create community, to, um, to survive, to, um, to eat, to travel, to, um, to, to uh, undergird their place in the created world. And um, what we learn is that, the, that ants, um, even though they have no discernible leader, do incredible things and accomplish amazing tasks as a group without a discernible leader. And if you separate out the individual ants to examine, well, how smart are these things then? Because you would expect if the group together can accomplish amazing feats and ants are at, the, at kind of a base level, essentially farmers, they, they collect uh, botanic matter and they uh, kind of um, uh, mush it together into a fungus that grows, grows up and, and that's what they feed on. So they're essentially farmers and they're quite efficient farmers. Um, so you would expect that you would find if you isolated an ant, you would discover that they're actually quite smart and that's why they work together so well. But the opposite is true. They're actually quite inept individually, but they are amazing as a community. How is that possible? Well, this dichotomy, this tension between these two things is trying to teach us something about the character of God and the way things work in the kingdom of God. So what can we learn about the way ants are with each other? Um, I asked a, 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 this group of young adults that I lead every week uh, to watch this video of what ants can teach us and then use this as a lens. What, what is it that we can learn about God and his kingdom if we just pay attention to how ants are? And here's some of the insights that they plucked out of this that I thought were brilliant. So uh, the first thing that many people said is the ants are kind of like us. When Jesus calls us sheep, he, he could also have called us ants because ants are kind of inept in, in and of themselves. Um, uh, and in the, in the piece on ants, one of the entomologists who's talking about ants says that they're basically stupid. <laughs> so one of the young adults said, well, that's not too bad a description of us, is it? We're basically stupid like sheep, like Jesus said we were. Um, however, when they're together, they are not. In community, they're amazing. They accomplish incredible things. They, they aren't stupid at all in the ways that they've devised to get food and fend off threats and survive. They're not stupid at all. In community, they're actually incredible. The, the more we pay attention to how ants live. So uh, part of what these young adults saw in this story is that independence is really counter to God's heart and his kingdom. On our own, we are inept, but in community or what you might call within the body of Christ, we can do amazing, incredible things, but only as we are dependent on him and dependent on one another. So an observation that the entomologists make in this video is that ants have no apparent leader. But that's an interesting thought, isn't it? No apparent leader. So how is it that they are working together? Is it just the result of evolution and, and survival of the fittest? Is that why they're working together? Or is there um, 
a hidden leader, someone not as obvious, who is, who is helping to lead the ants. Is there a leader that the ants are following that you can't see or touch or taste? Uh, is that leader more like the wind? <laughs> it, could it be possible that the spirit of Jesus um, leads his creation as well? And that he is the unseen leader of the ants as they are in community. Is that even possible? Or is it too, too out of bounds to consider? So God, what we can, what we can uh, safely, uh, I think safely say, is that God wants us in community. That we are only not inept when we are in his body, deferring to one another subjecting ourselves to dependence on him and to one another. Um, so then you can, you can realize how contra this message is to American culture, where I did this alone is the, you know, the highest form of honor in our culture. I did, I did this on my own. Yeah. I might've had people who helped me a little bit, but you know, we listen like uh, I'm recording this in the second week of the Olympics and uh, we hear people who win a medal talk about their accomplishment, and they often will say they're grateful for the people who helped them along the way. But really, the way we experience their story is that person did that. Um, we don't really believe that that accomplishment was due to the team that they had behind them. It was really because the, of the person's talent and hard work. And that fits our American cultural viewpoint that doing this alone is the highest form of, of um, accomplishment in our culture. So um, sheep, sheep that are independent find themselves lost and caught up in the brambles and at risk, right? If they, if they leave the herd because they think they don't need the herd, they're quickly in danger. This is the truth that we learn from Jesus telling the parable of the hundred sheep, the, uh, the one that the one that got away, the 99 sheep plus the one, um, that that sheep's in danger uh, because of its independence. Um, so, um, so, so really some of the message here of learning from the ants is that in the kingdom of God, there's something about the inept stupidity of the individual that becomes beautiful and amazing when it's together, when it's in a body, when it's in a team, um, that that's some of what we pulled out of, of, uh, that video exploration of the, of the, of the world of ants. So, um, all of that is a powerful insight that is story-based. So you can see the way story, um, the experiential story and we experience ants living this way. And then we see metaphoric connections to our own way of life and what Jesus is telling us is our reality. And then we live inside of that story. So in telling the story of the parable of the wheat and the weeds, just as he's immersed us in the story of the ants <laughs> and what it is teaching us when we are immersed in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, what is that story? How is that story influencing and changing the trajectory of our own story? So let's now go back to those two big questions. 
Why does Jesus allow the weeds to grow along with the wheat in our story? And then the second question is, what is the harvest he's referencing in this parable? So why does Jesus allow the weeds to grow along with the wheat in our story? And what's the harvest? Let's go back to the parable of the wheat and the weeds. So here I'm going to read it again, uh, just to re-familiarize ourselves with it. So here we go. Here's another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat. And then he slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Well, should we pull out the weeds, they asked? No, no, he replied. You'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let them grow together until the harvest. And then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles and burn them and to put the wheat in the barn. So let's, let's explore this a little bit uh, with our two questions. Um, that, again, I'll mention them again, just to, to repeat what we're looking for here. Why does Jesus allow the weeds to grow along with the wheat in our story? And what is the harvest he's referencing here? And so first off, let's say something kind of in a macro way about the parable in general and how people have, I mentioned before that the church is often uh, determined that this parable is about heaven and hell. But here, clearly, Jesus is saying the weeds were planted there by an enemy. So let's say for the sake of it that the farmer in this story is Jesus himself. The, the field is us. And that the wheat that's been planted has been the seed that has been planted by the farmer. And the farmer is good. The farmer has a good heart. But someone slips in at night to plant those weeds. So if this really was a parable about heaven and hell, you would have to say then that some people, uh, those that are destined for hell, were actually created and planted by God's enemy. Well, that's not true. We know theologically God created all of us. Um, so it's just simply not true that that the interpretation of this parable is that the weeds here are actually people who are condemned to hell. That would mean that those people were planted and created by Satan. And we know that's not true. So let's wipe that kind of meaning out right away. Um, but think about then the, that question about, well, why would, why would the farmer let the weeds grow up with the wheat? Here's some possibilities to, to think about to chew on. What if the weeds growing up along with the wheat force the wheat to survive and grow? What if because the wheat has a competitor for the life-sustaining nutrients it needs, that it forces it to become stronger and more vigorous and more itself? It's kind of like um, uh, the most expensive wines you can buy are wines made uh, from the grapes of vineyards that are in soils that are very difficult for vineyards to grow in. Uh, the more difficult the soil, the more complex the flavors of the grapes. And it's because the grapes, the grape vines have more to overcome in their environment. What if the same is true about the wheat's 
the weeds growing up amongst our wheat, those things that we share with like Paul, those thorns in our side that we just wish would be taken away. What if the reason Jesus says to Paul is, nope, I'm not going to take that thorn away. My grace is enough for you. When, what if Jesus is really say, hearkening back to this parable and essentially telling Paul, it's good that the weeds grow up with the wheat, the wheat and your response, the, 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 the weeds and your response to those weeds, I'm using to actually form something great and beautiful in you. What if it would be impossible for us to grow into the fullness of who we were meant to be if we didn't have the tension of the weeds in our life prompting us to exert our own strength in this process? I've always, I've said many times on this podcast, Jesus does very few things unilaterally. He wants to do things in partnership with us. That means we have to have our skin in the game too. And the weeds force the wheat to put the, its skin in the game. Trials, tribulations, these uh, character issues that we have, these recurring um, difficulties we have in our own narrative, the ways we think, the ways we sabotage ourselves over and over again. Um, what if these are actually necessary for our growth? And what if in order to become whole, we have to have them? So wholeness is an interesting word. Um, we, we know that Jesus came to rescue us from the penalty of our sin and to build a bridge back into relationship with God by sacrificing his own life to do, to do that, to give us that opportunity. And that's what we think of salvation is. But salvation is actually much bigger than that. Jesus came fundamentally to restore us into wholeness, to the kinds of people who live in the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is normal for us. And as people who live in this sort of broken, darkened world, we don't quote unquote normally live in the kingdom of God. So in order to learn the habit patterns and embrace the breathing patterns of the kingdom of God, we need to become whole again. And Jesus is a farmer. He's growing up a healthy crop of wheat in our soul. And that healthy crop um, will be harvested. But maybe the harvest isn't a point in time later on, but maybe just like in normal farming, the harvest happens over and over again. Maybe we go through seasons of harvest where the wheat is captured and stored in the barn. Maybe a way of saying what wisdom really is, is a person who's had a lot of wheat stored up in their barn um, so that they can draw out of that well-stocked barn nutrition for those around them, something that that person can eat and be sustained by. What if that's a, a really insightful way to think about wisdom? And what if the harvest in us happens over and over and over again? As the wheat grows up, the barn gets stocked. And as the barn gets stocked, we have more to give, more to offer, more sustenance, more impact with our life. Um, what, what if that is the point of the weeds? That, that they actually help to produce a bumper crop of wheat that is be, becomes progressively stronger 
So more resistant to the weeds, the longer the wheat continues to be planted in that field, that, that, that the, the wheat becomes uh, progressively more able to draw life from the soil and choke out the weeds that are there on its own. What if that is our path? Um, what if the, the, the way that we abide with Jesus allows him to get his hoe into us, you know, to, to till up our soil, to, to nurture his crop? What if, what if what he really needs for us to do is to offer up our field to him so that he can make the decisions about good farming in our field? And then if he chooses to leave some of those weeds there to grow alongside the wheat, what that reveals to us then is if we are in that place where we have weeds choking out our life for some reason, that it's intolerable to us unless we trust the heart of the farmer, unless we are fully convinced that the farmer's heart is good and he knows what he's doing, then our trust it goes outside of our own assessment of the weeds viability in our life or the weeds role in our life to trusting the, that the farmer knows what he's doing. And that if there are weeds left in our life story, that there is some purpose for them that we don't understand because we are not the farmer. And that is a humble, vulnerable place to be in, isn't it? To trust the heart of the farmer becomes everything then. And that's really the purpose of this podcast to learn more deeply how to trust the heart of the farmer. Um, so uh, in Romans 8, 28, Paul says, God causes all things to work together for good. But that's, that's what we usually say in kind of a shorthand way. But actually, that's not all he said. God causes all things to work together for good, who are called according to his purpose. Really, it's, he causes all things to, together for good for those quote-unquote fields who have offered and invited the farmer to till up their soil, to, to take care of them, to nurture them, to, to farm them. Um, so he does cause all things to work together for good because he's a really good farmer. But everything in the kingdom of God is by invitation. So will we respond to that invitation and let him farm? So... Um, the weeds, one of the things that this parable indicates is that the, the, the weeds are not always ready to be pulled up. Um, even though they're debilitating, even though they're stealing life, it's not time to pull them up yet because the impact that the farmer sees that they're having on the wheat, the full impact of that is not ready yet. They're not ready to be pulled up. But at some point, the farmer is promising, oh, those, those weeds will be taken care of. What if, in, in fact, uh, those weeds that are tied into bundles and burned up, what if that's metaphorically what happens as we progress and mature in our relationship with Jesus, where the wheat becomes strong enough then to harvest and then the weeds are pulled out at that time and they're burned up, they're, they're gone. Uh, what if it's possible that the weeds that we're so frustrated with in ourselves can actually be removed as our wheat continues to grow and grow some more. Um, so the, the harvest really is simply the repeated end of a season, right? 
And what if those seasons are of different lengths? Some are micro, some are macro, but in every case, the farmer is paying attention to the harvest and intending to harvest the strongest crop he can and to store it up in the barn of our soul so that we have a bumper crop stored up in there. Um, what if we harvest over and over and over again in our life? And the harvest itself is a harvest of joy. That, that all of that wheat stored up in the barn is the, is, is the, is the embodiment of our joy. Because joy comes when you have a full barn, <laughs> right? Uh, a barn that is so well stocked that no matter what occurs outside circumstantially, we know that there's enough stored up to handle it. Um, so those are some thoughts about the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Um, and going back to our original, um, the, what planted this whole thing in the first place is that story and metaphor are central to the heart of Jesus. He's wanting to invite us into his story through the medium of stories so that he can impact our story our self-narrative, so that he can bring our narrative, that he can guide it toward a, a whole conclusion where our life is whole. Well, there you have it, gang. We're going to do part two of story and metaphor in the next episode where we explore um, how he is always working, how Jesus is always working to plant redemption in the stories of those he encounters and how he's always working to plant redemption in our own story. So that's what we'll explore in the next episode. In part two of this, we'll get uh, I'll put a spotlight on how he actually does this in people's lives. And, and maybe we'll see um, something that resonates with our own story. Well, gang, uh, you can go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and look for season six, episode 22 for links to what we've talked about today. I'll link to that ant story that was on Sunday morning as well, so you can watch that if you want. That's painridiculousattentiontojesus.com, and it's season six, episode 22. This is Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from ricklawrence.com, and you can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes, and we'll see you again next episode.